Whenever you rent or buy a video, you need to be sure that the film you choose is suitable for the audience at home. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. Welcome to Friday Night Movie Time. I'm Lee. And I'm Mike. And this week we're discussing Gene Wilder film, Haunted Honeymoon. What do you get when you combine three of Hollywood's most hysterical talents with a creaky old castle and a werewolf legend? An amiable, kinky blend of hijinks and horror that leave you howling with laughter. Starring Gene Wilder, Gilda Radner and Dom DeLuise, this ingenious, amusing horror comedy will put a smile on your face and keep it there. That was part of the blurb that was written on the back of the VHS video. It's lying. Straight off the bat, I struggled a bit with this one. I enjoyed it more on the second viewing. I can't remember if I ever saw it in the 80s, to be honest. If I watched it at the time, it was pretty easily forgettable and to a certain extent still is. I actually saw this on the brief release it had back in 86 in the cinema. I went to see it because it, I was a big fan of Gene Wilder. By that point, I'd seen Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, all, all of his classic movies. And at the time, I thought this was an incredible movie. And how has it aged up for you? I, I'm going to leave that that answer to the end. Did you? Was this just a film that sort of passed you by? I think so. I was majorly into the two, the first two anyway, films that Gene Wilder did with Richard Pryor, Silver Streak and Stir Crazy. They were just massive part of my childhood so funny to this day they remain funny see no evil hue no evil's okay when you watch it now just not not as good as the other two it's kind of dated to sort of the nine because what was it? 80 89 yeah. it was yeah, sort of late 80s almost. early 90s i mean they did another film after that called another you don't think i've ever seen it i think it was called another you but again you can see the quality from where they started at silver streak to there it's gone down quite maybe because they were older and Richard Pryor was quite the presence, whereas Gene Wilder, although did have a lot of presence on screen, was very quiet and mild-mannered. But anyway, Haunted Honeymoon, 1986. Do you feel the title is very much a lie, considering when I mentioned to to my other half what we were reviewing, she says, oh, is it about ghosts? It's like, no, there's no ghosts in it. Technically, they're not on Honeymoon, are they? No, because they're getting married. Yeah, apparently so. We uh, have an opening shot of Gates... And the first of many influences from sort of 1930s horror. Gene Wilder directed this movie. Those memories of his childhood horror I'm um, watching. This film is a homage to old radio dramas and to universal horrors. It's yeah. heavily influenced by a universal horror film called The Old Dark House. Mighty starring Hill. Boris Karloff. Which, just like this film, got slated at the time. <laughs> Even the way it's shot with those one-shot 
scenes where the camera never moves it looks like one of those old movies so in that respect done very well it's just the way it's all put together as you said we have the opening shot of hanging out of the window yeah can i just go back to the gates before that that seemed to be a bit of a homage to curtains opening in the theater in the old days and you'd have the organ accompanying it then obviously we move on to we see the body hanging out of the window yeah roger ashton griffiths Older actors uh, in this movie who later appeared in Game of Thrones. And I'd just like to point out that I think he was born aged about 52 because... (laughs) Where obviously this is the opening setup to make you think that this is a horror movie and then it clearly has. He he looks up and obviously he's not dead. And the big joke about, oh, it's a woman dressed... uh, It's a man dressed up as a woman. In 1986 that would have been funny, whereas today it's with the attitude changing. It's just... Alright, fair enough. You know what we said about last time in the Cannonball Run, Dom DeLuise in that movie as well? When a lot of the actors in a film are dead, do you sort of bypass it and let them get away with it? I think the fact it's Dom DeLuise as well, he took nothing seriously. I think it's done in a very... I think it's done in a decent comic manner. It's not sort of over-the-top mocking of an issue. And it's also, again, back to that... In the old Dark House, I believe there's a woman playing a man's character. Yeah. And you know, it's supposed to be... I obviously don't have any problem with someone dressed up, up as man. And he does it very well, not mocking them, at, as you said, mocking them at all. Yeah. The first of the old werewolf throwback. That's a very sort of 1930s makeup style. It, it looks very much like Jack Pierce's makeup for yeah. Lon Chaney Jr. in The Werewolf. We've already mentioned that this film bombed. Why do you think that it didn't do so well, considering that Gene Wilder was such a popular actor the elements are there for a good film perhaps not the script but the performers are top notch Gene and Gilda together do have a bit of chemistry you know married in real life I think by this point yes third film together they'd done after Hanky Panky in 82 and The Woman in Red in 84 the last film that Gilda Radner actually did before she died one thing I found about this film it reminded me of The League of Gentlemen in the sense of it has all of these really bizarre scenes that are interlinked slightly, but it is very much a sketch of and this is this, this is this, but at least it's all linked up. This is trying to do too many things for me personally, um, and it's not doing them well. The only thing it does really well is the homage to the radio dramas and to the old horror movies. It sets up a lot of things, which we'll, which we'll discuss, which don't go anywhere. Perhaps a bit more similar to Psychoville. Did you watch that? I've never show seen that I was Steve Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith did. That was a good show, sort of based around an old manor house. For any listeners, um, we have, in case you don't know, those are two British shows. I'm sure you can get on some streaming services. Yeah, League of Gentlemen and Psychoville. Psychoville. That's right. And the two of them have gone on to Inside Number Nine now, which is a great anthology comedy show. Again, something I haven't watched either. Onto the sixth series now, mate. I think we got the final of the sixth series this week. Have you been watching? Yeah, it's still very good. Ah, good. You mentioned that we cut to the Manhattan Mystery Theatre, and that is definitely one of the best scenes in this film. I just loved all the throwbacks to other films. One of the people you get in there is uh, Mac McDonald. You tended to get in this period a lot of American actors living in Britain, and they'd quite often appear in the big blockbuster movies made over here. And you've got um, Matt McDonald, who was Captain Hollister in Red Dwarf as a yes. photographer. You actually get the two guys from Raiders of the Lost Ark who come and give Indy the details about the Ark of the Covenant at the beginning. William Hootkins, um, another gentleman 
playing uh, the producer, and they're pretty much dressed the same as they are in Raiders as well, which is slightly confusing. Because the film is is shot predominantly in the UK, you you can tell by the amount of people in it that are British. You've got Jonathan Price, you have Peter Vaughan. Nearly everyone is British apart from Gilda Radner, and Dom DeLuise and Gene Wilder. Yeah, and one person who retains a great deal of menace from me, one of the first films I ever saw in the cinema was Paul Smith playing uh, the Doctor, Paul Abbott. Yeah. He actually played Bluto in the Robert Altman Popeye movie with Robin Williams. I felt in this film, because Orson Welles had done so much, so many radio dramas, he was just playing Orson Welles. And he was, he even in very the, well. Yeah, even the setup. If it was Gene doing the cinematography as well in this movie, the setup when you first see him, you instantly think Orson Welles, don't you? Just the shadow yeah. in the doorway. And since Orson Welles was such a renowned stage and screen actor, to portray him in a film and do it well was quite an achievement. Paul Smith definitely uh, gives off that sort of... Is the word menace? I would say it's more imposing. He's obviously setting up what is going to happen in the rest of the film. But he's somebody I would like to have seen more in the film. Definitely. Because with a lot of characters on the screen you're not quite sure why they're on the screen and then they just go they call them one note characters like when you get the actor Brian Pringle who plays Fista <laughs> sorry that's a great one that is that has got to be intentional it's spelt with a PF apparently but his one note is sort of mishearing isn't it yeah speaking of Fista when we first see him I'm watching it this time it almost re- reminded me of a, of a poor man setting up a fl- Frau Blucher in Young Frankenstein. Yes. But not done as well. Because I know the whole idea is he, do, he doesn't recognise him unless he's drunk. Further on in the film, he does recognise him. But then you don't realise that he's supposed to be drunk because it's not it's not set up well. That joke doesn't really land the early one about him mishearing. Yeah. When Gilda Radner's going up the stairs and he misinterprets it. Yeah, I know. And then he just starts shouting at her. It's... It felt a very forced joke. It's like, oh no, laugh at this, laugh at this. Another UK TV store. What we get? Jim Carter as Montego with the glowing eyes. What is his role in this movie? Really? Just being Jim Carter, he's awesome. I mean, he's <laughs> most uh, known now by people around the world as the butler in Downton Abbey. But apart from the opening, the, the one scene where he has the shiny eyes which is never really explained away, that's it. You see him maybe twice more. Yes, and we also get Anne Wei, who was the colonel's wife in the Gourmet Night episode of Faulty Towers, as the, is she the housemaid? The yes. elderly one? And Peter Vaughan, as you said, Grouchy from Porridge, sitcom here in the UK. He's another man that's always looked about 70, even in... And only passed away two four years. or five years yeah. ago, I think. Yeah. He was in the first... Five seasons of Game of Thrones? I think he was in, in later than that as well. I think he may have been up to... Or maybe I th- it was 2018 he died. I thought I'd read it as 2016. Maybe he did film all of it. He'll, he's always been a menacing character, even though he's always looked about 70. Uh, one thing that struck me throughout is... Do you think it would have been a better decision if Gene had filmed this in black and white? I'd never actually thought about that, but... Just sort of hit me yes. halfway through watching it last night. Yes, it would. It would have fitted even better into the time period he's trying to to achieve. 
being in colour brings nothing to this movie. It doesn't need to be bright. In fact, the majority of it is quite dark and dour. The only really light scenes we have is at the very beginning in the radio studio. And then, no, I'm not spoiling it, this one's been out for 35 years. And at the end in the radio studio. One thing I wanted to bring up about Gene is I think he's still at his very best in the sort of panicky phys- physical comedy. Because there is that scene when he ends up sitting above the deer's head. And that's sort of the, one of the first times in this film that did make me laugh out loud. Did you not laugh uh, when the monster, shall we say, walks down the wall? Yeah, was that before this when if he sits above the deer head, something happens? You see, I'm getting so muddled now because there's, there's, a, there's a lot that goes on in this film in quite a short period of time. Again, back to the, it seems so disjointed. There's, they're just putting this in and this in and this in, but no no thread all the way through you know it's a bit like the sequel Star Wars trilogy yeah <laughs> shortly after that Dom DeLuise coming down the stairs he's almost floating yeah Dom DeLuise has really done the best with the material he's given I don't know how much of it I wouldn't be surprised if he improvised the whole thing yeah Dom DeLuise was one of those comedy actors that just yeah. made you laugh by being on the screen and now having listened lately to Burt Reynolds audiobook uh biography and Gilda Radner's apparently just a, a bloke you could sit and listen to for hours on set he just kept that sort of energy going through his humour he seems to from interviews I've seen he seems to be that person all the time affable friendly gentleman that wouldn't hurt a fly yeah and one thing I did love was when we get to the musical number between um, Dom and Gilda halfway through they both give each other their moments there's not one taking over it yeah. you know because Gilda Radner was amazingly talented when you go back and I've watched a lot of interviews listened to her her biography um, since we decided to do this episode have you ever watched any of her Saturday Night Live stuff from the original the first series yeah you know the characters I just love saying it Rosanna Rosanna Dana yeah she went far before her time she was yeah a genuine uh, shining light in comedy and one of the originals of Saturday Night Live. She was, indeed. Following on from Second City TV, which produced, I think, her and Eugene Levy, Paul Schaefer, the musician who ended up on the, um, what's the chat show, Letterman? David Letterman. Yeah, and he was also, also in the Blues... He was in Blues Brothers 2000. He was supposed to be in the Blues Brothers. Yeah. But because of um, contractual to someone, he wasn't able to... I think it was to Saturday Night Live, so he couldn't be in the film. A film I only saw, the sequel, uh, a few months ago, and wish I hadn't. Have you really never seen it before? No. You should have just left it like that. Yeah, I know. It's an awful film. <laughs> that's why when people keep talking about the new Ghostbusters film, that's what I keep imagining. It's going It's going to be Blues Brothers 2000. Oh, goodness me, I hope not. And nothing about Blues Brothers 2000. It didn't come out in the year 2000. Was it 99 or 98 or something? It was like 98, 90, something like that. I don't know, because I thought I would have been all over it at that time, but I think I probably looked forward to it and then read some reviews and thought, oh, they're calling this a turkey. I didn't see it. I didn't go and see it in the cinema, even though the Blues Brothers is one of my... I know we're completely going off subject now, but we'll be back to it, don't worry. was because I loved the Blues Brothers so much. I thought, well, it hasn't got John Belushi in it. How good is it going to be? And then when they announced, they said that it was going to be John Goodman. I said, right, I love John Goodman. Yeah, not even John Goodman. Dan Aykroyd could save that movie. It was trash. I know. John Goodman usually adds a whole other layer of just charisma to any movie. Yeah. 
Just so flat, that film. In many ways, a lot like Home the Danny Boone. I think a bit more talent on show in, uh, oh, I don't know. in this one. Oh, no, there's quite a lot of especially musical talent in that, in Blues Brothers 2000. Going back to Haunted Honeymoon, you did back. mention before about um, the body walking down the ceiling. Homage to 1930s horror techniques. What was the point of this scene? One, it's not really explained away. They're frightening him. The whole idea of frightening Larry into being okay, into being able to get married. With those 1930s techniques, I guess. <laughs> Whatever but, they are. But the scene doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Because already know that the werewolf might not be real. Everything that is set up has not yeah. set up for this scene. Yeah. You could have just had someone trying to frighten him. Later on, will you have Gilda Radner swinging from the... Yeah. You know that's something they've set up. But this one scene just doesn't make any sense. No, true. It just reminds me of something a few years ago, which kind of destroyed my childhood. I never really wanted to find out how they did these techniques in films. And then somebody I stumbled across a YouTube video was showing you how Harold Lloyd hung off the clock. Did you not? Did you not know that? <laughs> Yeah, deep down, but yeah. I never actually wanted to see it, you know? I know what you mean. <laughs> it was real, damn it. Yeah. Those Sunday afternoons on BBC in the 80s. Like parts of that scene with the body walking down, because once again, Gene is doing the physical comedy. And that's what he's very good at. You know, it makes me think of, is it stir crazy when they're walking through the jail saying, we're bad, we're yeah. bad. That is one of the greatest comedy moments. Gene Wilde makes every scene that he's in the most out of it. Even though it was a bad and a pointless scene, his performance was he nailed it. Yeah. Shame he didn't nail the direction and writing. Because one thing we haven't mentioned about this, this was written by Gene Wilder, but it was also written by Ter- Terence Marsh. Now, Terence Marsh was a production designer. Why are you letting a production designer write a film? I know a lot of you know people have gone from one job in cinema to another, which is, but he hasn't written anything else since. Oh, he's written one other thing. But why give someone that hasn't got a tested track record I mean if he was a new writer and yeah. had, a, had a body of work he'd written but he hadn't he was a production designer he just worked on a lot of other different films I mean he, I think he'd acted in a few but not really that many I think it was more of a oh look it's Terence March and he's a production designer on this film the cops turn up I did laugh when Gene's fooling them with the legs hanging out of the uh, side of the box and one of the cops this is a guy who has the unique movie deaths, the guy with the moustache. He's the one who dies with the anal intruder in Top Secret. And ten years later, he's the first victim of On Top, um, getting crushed to death by her thighs as a Russian general in Goldeneye. So what would be the trio, mate? What would be the third sexually related death he could have in a film? He's probably got quite a lot. Yeah. He's maybe it's like he was a forerunner for Sean Bean, who seemed to yeah. die in every movie yeah. he was in. Maybe he stands in front of King Kong when he blows his beans or something and huh. gets drowned. <laughs> that scene in Top Secret is still one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. We found him with a smile on his face. Yeah. Some good homages. Well, right from the beginning, we've had the curtains blowing in the mansion, which is a proper horror staple. A good tracking shot as Jean's running through the house. Is this when we're introduced to Gilda Radner of flying on the ropes? Yeah, with Jonathan Price. Uh, directing her there is something about this scene that just makes me think really i've had vivid dreams but i do know that they're dreams i mean they try and set it up first almost in a salem's lot way don't they you know with a mist in the background that's what i'm saying through all of this they try and set so many things up this film doesn't seem to know what it wants to be the studio wants us to think that it's a horror comedy but there's not really much horror in it it's not really a thriller Yes, it has some funny scenes in it, but I wouldn't really say that it's a comedy other than it has Gene Wilder, Don Delweese, 
and Gilda Radner in it. It's trying too hard, and I think if they'd brought in an actual writer... I mean, I know Gene, uh, Gene Wilder had co-written uh, Young Frankenstein, was it? I think so with Mel. Have you ever seen A Bronx Tale? Yes. The film directed by Robert De Niro. You can tell there's a huge Martin Scorsese influence on that movie. A Haunted Honeymoon needed a huge Mel Brooks influence to make it a really funny comedy. Hit the nail on the head there, I think. This comedy is very hard to do and get right, because even though sometimes you think something... How many times have you told somebody a story of something that was funny, and the other person just looks at you going, not funny to me? It is very hard to get comedy right, and even though he's a great comedy actor and a pretty good writer, you do need someone that knows how to do this really well. Another part towards the end that made me laugh was the dancing with the corpses. I was just thinking a young director was probably watching that and three years later we had Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> and, oh, and there was a sequel out of it, of course. Was there two sequels? There was two sequels. No, yeah. we're really struggling if we do Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> the werewolf knocks one of them out. We get a mystery with the face mask of Fister. And that's when my concentration fell off a cliff because I didn't know what was going on by this point. Because of the um, lack of linear story, you don't really know what's going on. When you have thrillers like Agatha Christie, the story is easy enough to follow, and then they usually throw you a curveball, which yeah. you didn't really see coming, and then they say who the murderer is. This doesn't do that. It just takes bits of the scenes and just sticks them all together. I mean, were they drinking heavily at yeah. the time? And just going, yeah, that'll all work. Would this have worked better as just a straight-up horror without the whodunit aspect if there had just been a monster? I suppose technically by the end you could say that there is. I don't know what it would have worked as. Would it have worked better as a straight-up... They could have gone for a real horror comedy in the sense... Have you ever seen Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? Yes. Something like that, where it's genuinely a horrible thing, where you know the monster kills people, but there is also a lot of humour in it. This has neither one of those. And then we get the sort of ambiguous ending, where you wonder if... This was all just a story as we head back to the radio workshop. It, it is quite ambiguous, but I also think if you've ever listened to The Twilight Zone, the radio versions, of, and even the TV show The Twilight Zone, where it has that final message yeah. where you're not quite sure whether it was real or whether it wasn't, I think that's what it's just doing. It's just going, ooh, was it all really a dream or was it all yeah. really a radio <laughs> drama? Would you recommend it, Lee? As negative as I've been about this film, and I've been quite negative, I still kind of love it. It's because it reminds me of my childhood. It was the, one of the films that was at the point where I started to have a real taste in, in cinema instead of just watching everything. If someone said, can you recommend a good Gene Wilder movie? I wouldn't recommend this. No. But I, it is still entertaining to me. Is it that point in his career as well? He's not doing as good stuff as... Blazing Saddles, mid-70s. Young Frankenstein, mid-70s. Silver Streaks, Stir Crazy. Was his 80s stuff that good? Hanky Panky, I think, is a better film. A better vehicle. It's not that much better film, but it's a better vehicle for him and Gilda. I know I've seen Hanky... Um, when I watched the trailer, in preparation for this, say, like, oh, I remember this movie, but I don't really remember it, if you get what I mean. Same with The Woman in Red. I remember yeah. it. I know that I've seen that more than once. But I don't really remember it. I just remember the scene of him falling. But that's about it. Well, obviously, Willy Wonka started in the 70s. I know a lot of people really love that film, but i got to be honest, it's not one of my go-to Gene Wilder movies. It would be really low down. 
not necessarily go to. I just, for me, always Silver Streak and Stir Crazy, and the Mel Brooks collaborations. My go-to Gene Wilders will always be Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, and then Silver Streak and Stir Crazy. And if I'm feeling really generous, see no evil, hear no evil. I'm not sure if I would necessarily recommend this. I think I possibly would have enjoyed it more in the 80s. With less of a critical brain that I have now. I think one of the reasons why I liked it at the time and not as much now, although I still enjoy it, it's because it was at that point in my life where, as I said, I was allowed to go on the bus to go to the cinema on my own, which was great. And it had enough childish humour in it to make me laugh, but also to go, oh, it's got these actors and they are good at doing these things. Two years older than me, aren't you? Yes, so I would have been 11. And fun enough, when I was 11 years old, I was allowed to go on the bus into town. Same year. I did the same year when I was 11. I could not imagine an 11-year-old being allowed to do that now. No, it was 88 to 89 for me, that sort of period. So, Mike, what are we going to be talking about next time? It's a big anniversary next month. 40 years since... Raiders of the Lost Ark. So we will be discussing that. Bye bye for now. Bye for now. One, two. And And then then you twist twist around and and twist twist around around with all your your might. Spread your loving arms. Clear out of space. You do the eagle rock with style and grace. You put your left foot out and bring it back. And that's what we call on the jack. And that's what we call